Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I am Anna Fishson, your host for this podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Catherine Pickering Antonova about her important new book, An Ordinary Marriage, The World of a Gentry Family in Provincial Russia. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Kate Kate and I went to uh, graduate school together, and it's really a pleasure for me to see her book in print and read it and to have this opportunity to discuss it with her. So um, actually, Kate, when you first conceived of this project, I remember thinking what a big contribution it would be because there was so little scholarship on pre-emancipation Russian noblewomen um, at that time, yeah. I thought. You know, or there much less their involvement in estate management, uh, for example. But uh, now Kate's book is a part of a wave of terrific recent mm-hmm. uh, scholarship on the Russian nobility. And An Ordinary Marriage, I think, is unique because it deals most explicitly with the middling gentry and um, is an in-depth case study and especially revelatory for that reason. So, uh, Kate, can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and the genesis of the book? Um, sure, yeah. I think there's not much of interest to say about me. Uh, my name is Russian, of course, but I'm not, so I should say that. I come from Michigan. I'm not a Russian. Um, that confuses a lot of people. Um, but I have the usual academic background of, you know, having gotten a PhD at Columbia with you, in fact, and, and that's about the whole story. Um, the genesis of the book is much more interesting. Like you said, um, in the beginning, when I first started this project, which I think the very beginning of it was around 2003, 2004, so about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there was virtually nothing else out there. And when I first conceived of it, I thought I'd, you know, go and find bits and pieces of documents by women, because I didn't think there'd be a lot or long documents by women anywhere. There were a few things in published collections, like a little bit of a ladies' day book from, I think, the late 18th century or early 19th. I thought I'd find a few more things like that. Hmm. Um, That's what I was hoping to do. So it it didn't set out to be a micro-history at all. Um, What it started out as is, I'm sure you'll remember around that time when Michelle Maurice's book came out, um, a book called A Noble Woman's Kingdom about women owning property in Russia in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And it was, we knew, you know, that legally Russian women, married women could continue to own their property, which wasn't true in Western Europe. What Michelle did in her book was show that they actually did that. They were managing their property. They were representing right. themselves in court, all of that. It was really interesting. So I read that as a graduate student when I was preparing for my orals and reading it. I was fascinated, of course. And I thought, well, what was life like in those households? <laughs> you know, what was the husband doing? In some cases, he might have been absent, but in some cases he was home. So what was he doing there? How did they raise their children? What did they think when they read, you know, British novels that were were basically advertising domesticity and the idea of the lady of the house and all of that? What did they think of that? You know, that's what I wanted to know. So I set out thinking I'd find bits and pieces of women's documents and idealistically imagined I would find a lot of that, or at least enough of it, and that it would 
tell me answers to my questions. And I spent about a year in preliminary research finding absolutely nothing, just wow. nothing. That's, that's why there was so little about the middling gentry in particular, about women especially. Um, mm-hmm. There's so little because it's really hard to find evidence. And almost everyone I talked to said, there's nothing, there's nothing, you won't find anything. Particularly being interested in provincials, people who never really lived in Petersburg or Moscow, yeah. As you know well, the Soviets, um, when the, the archives were formed mostly in the 1920s, the Soviets centralized a lot. They liked to centralize, and they <laughs> tended to just ignore or, or actively destroy documents they weren't interested in. And the subjects they weren't interested in included women and provincial gentry, right? Um, wow, I didn't so, realize that, that they actually destroyed all of those, that there probably ha- would have been more documents available. Hmm. Yeah, there might have been more. I mean, I've seen a couple of cases, I know others have seen more, where it's actually listed in the archival reference, and then they have a little note saying destroyed, which is kind of amusingly honest. (laughs) Um, But in other cases, I would imagine, because I think, I'm pretty sure the Chikashov documents were deposited in the 1920s, that um, they were deposited in a local archive, and so the local archivist decided to keep it for whatever reason. If that family had been slightly more prominent and had thought enough of themselves to deposit it in Moscow, Moscow archivists may have said, this is not important enough for us and just not taking the papers, you know, I think that probably happened. Um, Mm -hmm. So I didn't expect to see much. And it was just a matter of pure luck that I happened to run into the right person at a conference. It was now my friend, Susan Smith-Peter, who's the uh, Russian scholar at uh, CUNY Staten Island. Mm. Um, I didn't know her yet at the time at all. I met her at random and I mentioned what I was interested in. And she literally grabbed me and shook me and said, you have to go to Ivanova. Which, you know, are <laughs> on the one hand, I was happy she had some ideas for me. On the other hand, the, the words, you have to go to Ivanova. Yes. Um, it's not like not you have make... to go to Moscow, you know, it's a little, yeah. Yeah, go exactly. Ahead. I like to compare Ivanova to Gary, Indiana. It's um, <laughs> it's kind of backwoodsy. It's, it's a former industrial area with no industry anymore. It's not a great place to spend 10 months of your life. Wow. Um, it's not a first, des- you know, first choice on anyone's list of destinations in Russia, um, but she was absolutely right, and that's where these documents were. The documents of the Chikachov family, who are obscure people. I wanted that. I didn't want famous people who are writers. You know, a lot of times when you get a lot of documents saved, it's because the person had great writing talent, and that's interesting in its own way. But what I wanted to find out was explicit- explicitly about ordinary people. So I didn't want famous people. I didn't want writers. I didn't want the super wealthy because in wealthy families they would pay someone to. Uh, manage their property mm-hmm. so we wouldn't get the kind of scenario I was interested in. Um, so anyway, she, she located this archive. She happened to stumble across it by accident, and then I stumbled across her by accident and found it. And I think the reason no one um, who was interested in using it completely found it before me. There are a few people who did a little bit with it. But the reason mm-hmm. no one else like me found it before me was you don't think to go to Ivanova for that kind of thing, <laughs> right? It wasn't even a town in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really uh, get founded as a town until much later, I think the 20s. Um, mm-hmm. So it was kind of a lucky accident. Did you get to know ways. the archivists very well while you were there? <laughs> Drink a lot of oh, tea? Oh, goodness, yes. yes. <laughs> Every single moment they were open for 10 months, <laughs> I sat there in their reading room. And there was just one reading room archivist, so I knew her quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like she's family at this point. <laughs> well, it's it's you've touched on this a little bit already, but I... I actually wanted to ask you um, about the title uh, mm-hmm. and and the word ordinary. You mentioned you wanted to study an ordinary family. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought about, well, what's interesting is that your 
you look at this one family very closely, and yet you have a lot to say about the gentry more generally, right? And you do mm-hmm. it, I think, very convincingly. But I'm, I'm curious if you if you also meant ordinary in any kind of uh, what some of the other implications might have been, and and using that word, were you were you suggesting that Jukachovs were representative, or typical, or common, or or do you have a different take, or were you using it in a more, I don't know, less programmatic sense? Well, I mean, I guess title. I, I avoid the word representative, and I think I, I think in the book somewhere I use typical, but in some qualified kind of way. Mm. Um, for what, they were certainly not representative of the nobility at all. Their their category that I refer to as the middling nobility, of course, which was a large group, much larger than the super elite we usually hear about, but still not the majority even of the nobility. And then something even within like 20%, that group, right? Huh? Something like twenty percent. Yeah, something like 20%. That's mm-hmm. about right. Um, so the vast majority were much poorer than these people even. Um, but so of that 20%, I'm not sure that they're even even necessarily representative of them. I think they're an interesting group, uh, part of an interesting group of which there were more than just this one family. Because we know from Michelle Maurice's book that there were other families where the women were managing the property. Right. We know that there were a lot of families that stayed exclusively in the provinces. We know that a lot of families shared the same economic circumstances, roughly, that they had. So in that sense, I don't think they're unique or terribly unusual. They're not. Um, I think the other reason the word ordinary, I think, is very useful is more in the sense of common. Like you said, the other the other synonym you chose was common. And right. I think I mean it in that sense that they were not extraordinary in any particular way. It's really luck that the papers were saved. Now, Andre, the father, husband of the family, he's a little bit of an odd duck <laughs> in the sense that he yes. wrote a lot. You could call him a graphomaniac. He seemed to be sort of obsessed with writing, and that's part of why there's a lot of material. And I think the whole rest of the archive, his wife's diaries, his brother-in-law's diaries, his son's diaries, which are smaller and would have been considered by archivists less interesting, were saved because they went along with his stuff, his much more substantial stuff. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think he's not necessarily totally ordinary. He just had an unusual personality and an unusual affinity for writing things down. But there's nothing extraordinary at all about the other members of the family. And even including Andre, all of them were, frankly, not particularly talented. (laughs) They weren't great writers. Um, They weren't well-known. They were ordinary members of the community in the the general common sense of just these are people that no one would raise eyebrows about, right? Their mm-hmm. behavior, the way they organized labor, which is what I'm talking about a lot, the way they organized their roles um, in their family was not frowned upon or didn't raise eyebrows in any way amongst their neighbors. And I know that because I have letters with their neighbors. I have accounts of their neighbors' visits, including some conversations that they wrote down, that kind of thing. So I know that they were considered ordinary in that sense. Um, and then finally, I had to have to give credit to my editor at Oxford for the title. She actually came up with that um, after <laughs> we discussed see. for weeks a million other possibilities. Right. Um, and she came up with an ordinary mar- marriage to convey the argument as well that even though initially when I described the marriage roles of these two people, that the wife was managing the property and the finances, that the husband was uh, in the early years mainly raising the children, it sounds like the opposite of what we expect from, you know, olden times, the 19th century. But in fact, at the time, and for them and for their neighbors, it was ordinary. So that part of the argument is also being conveyed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they were not unusual, even though they, you don't claim that they were representative. That makes sense. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There were others like them. I don't think the others like them were necessarily even the majority among provincial nobility, but it was a possibility. It was a way of life that didn't, uh, you know, 
uh, cross any particular norms that didn't raise eyebrows. Yes, you make Some that point in the like book. That. It's a good point. I didn't. It wasn't offensive in any way. Well, I was going to ask right. you also about the graphomania, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the patriarch, right, Andre. He's the the real okay. the graphomaniac here, and he kind of mm-hmm. enlists everybody in, in his project yeah. and um, <laughs> recruits them essentially. But uh, how common do you think that was? Do you think that that was a, he was a real eccentric in that sense, or? Or, um, or maybe others. Well, or, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, he he is an eccentric. I think anyone who reads the book, as I'm sure you're experienced as well, he's he's an eccentric. He's an interesting <laughs> personality, um, and, and people around him, you know, like oh, Andre, he's always going on about that. There would be that kind of attitude towards him. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot going on in that era, the 1830s, especially. Print culture was really on the rise, not as much in Russia as in Britain, right? The, the mm-hmm. sort of yardstick case for that. But of course, it was still on the rise. Provincial people were reading more. Um, and reading more, I think, can inspire a certain kind of people to want to write more. There was a lot of epistolary novels at the time, novels written in letters. And I think that sort of gave people ideas sometimes. Um there was a lot of, you know, a lot of what you were taught in school in those days was writing formal letters and, and different forms of writing that, that he was partly being didactic when he made his son write a diary to just sort of practice his handwriting was actually part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So it could serve that use. And then once you got into it, if you liked it, like you might keep up with it, right? So like he made his brother-in-law start a diary and clearly the brother-in-law was initially skeptical because he writes later to Andre, well, you know, I finally told did what you told me to to do, and I really appreciate it. It's actually really interesting, and I'm enjoying it. Um, so he was convinced by someone else. But most interestingly, I um, read, just as I was doing the final revisions on the book, I read a wonderful book um, by Melissa Fraser uh, on the romantics. She's a literature scholar. Um, it's about more than that. But the part that's interesting for me right here is about uh, some of the romantic literature of the period. And one of the things she talks about is early romantic literature having been intended to be read out loud and discussed amongst the readers and writers in small groups. Mm-hmm. And then as romantic literature became more popular, more people were reading it, right? You kind of lost that close connection between author and audience. Except one of the things that I say is that I think Andre was trying to recreate that in his own way. They don't have the author present because these are not people in elite literary circles, but he would try to create a little circle. He'd read out loud in the evening with his family and friends and force them all to talk about it. Yes, um, and that was right. They seemed right. had to be quite resistant, but he kept on. Yes. Yes, and he had all these rules for how it would go. But then then right. he would want to write about it as well. And he would ask his brother in law for his he'd you know lend him a book and then say, Tell me what you thought about it. And then that was recorded in some of their notebooks. Um, so he was kind of part of there was some of this in the air and the atmosphere, but I think it also took a certain personality to really pick up on it. And then mm-hmm. he picks up on it to an almost obsessive degree. Right. Um, actually, you mentioned the book is a micro history. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you've already touched on some of the issues involved in writing a micro history, but maybe you can say a little mm-hmm. more about what a micro history is, actually. And because, mm-hmm. again, it, it's not really, um, even though you focus very intensively on this one family, you, you say a lot about g- the gentry world as a whole, right? And also, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, I as I was, you know, my experience of it as a reader I mean, I, I was very involved. By the end of the book, I felt like I had read this novel with these interesting mm-hmm. characters and I was losing something uh, when I finished mm-hmm. the book. I was oh, wondering how w- what it was like getting to know this family and if, if you got kind of attached to them. And I mean, do you, do you feel like there are certain kind of pitfalls or advantages to doing a micro history? 
Yeah, oh, those are great questions and very deep questions that I'm not sure mm-hmm. I've figured out even now, you know, um, especially heading back into it, not intending to write a microhistory. I don't know if that's how everyone falls into writing them, but um, so it obviously became a microhistory just because I came across this set of documents that was so incredibly extensive, there was no other way to handle it. Um, mm. So I kind of fell into it, and then I had to figure out what a microhistory is, and the sort of half-joking definition I tend to give is, is where you take a little tiny story or a small set of documents and try to say big things about it. <laughs> um, and that, that is what I'm trying to do. I think a microhistory that's successful goes into great depth about a small, it's like a microculture, some kind of small set of documents or small story, or sometimes it's about a town, in this case it's about a family, take some small case, um, but then to make it worthwhile and significant and interesting, you have to say what that case could tell us. And you always run into the representativeness question, is it just one weird little case or not? And I kind of, I mostly just want to avoid that question because I think the value of a microhistory is it's so rare with history at all, especially if you're going back at least 200 years or around Mm -hmm. there, to have depth. We usually have to make a lot out of very little in the sense that the documents are fragmentary. That I mean, we almost never have anything truly representative that's virtually impossible from 200 years back, you know. Um, yeah. So when you do have sources that can give you tremendous depth, I think you just need to read them and see what they tell you, and you can't ignore them, and you just have to do it, right, and not worry about the representativeness. Um, except, of course, if your documents are from people so out side of the, their milieu, so different from everyone else that lived around them, then you're going to have to deal with that. And in this case, I tried to find out how how people reacted to them. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, as I said, I, I found that for the most part, these people were an awful lot like their neighbors. Right, right. And they were so, they were um, so, so well integrated. Sorry. Yeah. They were so well integrated. And, and, and I think that's, you know, in your thicker description, it, it kind of unravels or the world kind of unfolds. And in fact, mm-hmm. the structure of the book, I love the structure of the book. So just to say out oh, loud great. a few chapters, the provincial world, society, the village, estate management, sociability, charity and leisure, um, illness, grief and death, domesticity and motherhood, the education of Alexei, education for all in the landscape of ideas. The only thing when I first started to read the book, I thought, what about religion? You know, why isn't mm-hmm. religion a chapter? Or gambling, yeah. or like drinking vodka, or something, you know, like all of these. <laughs> and then I, I, I quickly, you know, uh, found the answers to those. Que- well, for one thing, religion and religious belief really figures prominently in every chapter. It permeates every mm-hmm. chapter. At the so, and then gambling. I guess the Chikachovs didn't really. They were exceptional in this way. They they just didn't drink very much, or ga- well, at least they didn't report drinking or gambling very much. Um, yeah. So I guess I, I thought it might be fun to talk to you about the organization of the book and um, maybe ask you, you know, if you, if there are any fantasy chapters that were unwritten or chapters written and abandoned or. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up exactly those things on religion. I had planned. In fact, it was in my proposal for the original dissertation when the whole project oh, wow. started that a really core part of it would be religion and particularly female religious practice. Because, you know, like any graduate student in Russian history, and I'm sure you remember doing this too, I read about in the medieval and early modern periods, the woman as intercessor between man and God. There's a great literature on that. Um, And then there's a lot on uh, institutional religion in particular, but also religious practice in the late imperial period. And I thought there's this huge gap in between. There's a few interesting tidbits that suggested there was a lot going on there, like Anna Lobsina's diary, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, Gary Marker, historian Gary Marker has written an amazing article on. 
And so I knew there was something interesting there. And it was something I hoped I would also be able to shed light on in some way. And it turns out my documents just didn't give me much to go on that I, the kind of things that I wanted. For example, um, Natalia Ivanovna, the, the mother and wife of the family, right. she writes in her diary almost every single day, I prayed to God. She frequently thanks God when things go well. She talks about buying icons. So clearly religion is incredibly important to her, and that's why it does kind of permeate virtually everything she says in the documents, and so it's throughout the book. But there was nothing further to go on. Andre talks much more about his religious belief, but that's a area I was less interested in. I want to know about female religious practice and, and how that was understood to fit in with, with roles of the family and the rest of it. And there just wasn't that much to go on. So it ended up being a sort of theme throughout rather than something I could focus on in a chapter that was revealing something new that I hadn't known before. And so that's not there. That's a chapter that's not there. And then actually, uh, if we talk later about my next project, that's something I tried to go back to. Oh, great. I can't um, wait to hear. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the gambling, yes. I mean, a part of me, I mean, I saw these documents in the original. I was there holding with my bare hands the original diaries. I could see the bug stains, the, you know, every little <laughs> detail of the original. And part of me on reading them was thinking, God, this must be fake. Why don't they drink? Why don't they gamble? Like, they really be this, like, perfect. They seem relatively happy. It's, I mean, there are, there are dark sides clearly to their story. Uh-huh. But yeah, it almost stretches incredulity. My favorite part, though, is, is their son, um, the, the family son. He goes off to military service and his letters home and a diary are preserved. He wrote the diary, obviously knowing his father would read it. I'm pretty sure his father told him to write it. Um, you know, he told him to write his first diary. This was probably written the same way. And so this teenage and then 20 something young man off in the army for the first time in his life in another country. And all he says he did was drink tea and eat ice cream. Yeah, it was, <laughs> and, that was, you know, I hardly met thinking, women at all. That's one of my incredulity sort of peaked or, yeah. <laughs> I don't uh, believe that for a moment. I believe he was lying to his father. Right? That was another common pastime, I thought, mm-hmm. among the gentry who go off. Maybe I, yeah, but that was no, of course, mention of anything of that nature. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because they do talk so much about when friends are over and so on. So, again, I don't think they're completely exceptional. I mean, I'm sure some families did more drinking and gambling than others, as in any population, right? Um, but mm-hmm. I, I see very detailed records of exactly, you know, what was served at a party and, and who was there and what they did, and sometimes a moment-by-moment moment account, in particular in one case, of what was done. And it's dancing, singing. They played cards a lot, but almost never for money or for very small stakes. I think part of that might have simply been that they weren't wealthy enough to throw money away, you know? Uh, uh-huh. Yes. Um yeah, and I, I think, you know, they seem to be, at least Andre seemed almost actively, you bring this up again and again, uh, trying to curb those kinds of tastes in his son, at least. But that mm-hmm. was part of his yeah. program for him. Um, but I want to also, before, you know, we'll, we'll get, we're getting yet too um, far into the interview, I wanted to ask you about the, you have a lot to say about the European cult of domesticity and how the mm-hmm. Russian picture complicates this. This is a huge thesis in the book, and I I think very interesting. Can you say, can you tell us a a bit about that? Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's a funny case, because on the one hand, it's not very interesting to say, you know, look at these people, these ordinary, obscure people from Russia. They weren't acting the way we would expect from, you know, X novel written in Britain in the 1830s. Well, of course we wouldn't expect that. And in fact, in Britain in the 1830s, ordinary people didn't necessarily act like that, Mm -hmm. right? People don't act like novels. Mm -hmm. 
Right, exactly. Or not even novels, but the prescriptive literature that, that really sort of defined domesticity that, you know, famously became very dominant in the discourse in Britain, especially, but really everywhere in Europe in the you know, 1820s, 40s, 40s, um, that literature, which to be clear about, you know, the, the woman is the angel of the house who takes care of the home and is kind of a status symbol for the family while the man is out earning money, right? That was sort of the, the original mm-hmm. prototype. Um, a lot of that was very prescriptive in the sense it was articles and periodicals telling people this is an ideal family, right? And that does yeah. not ever imply that people were really living that way. And there's a lot of work in Western context showing where people didn't live that way. Um, so that's not the most interesting part. The interesting part for me is exactly what form it took in this family um, and in other families as well, and why it took the particular forms that it did. And of course, it's been long noticed that in Russia, I mean, the, the cult of domesticity is very much built upon the rise of the middle class in, in the Western model, yeah. right? That yeah. it had to do with there being huge opportunities for men in Britain and other Western countries in the commercial area in, in new professions like law and medicine that were more accessible than they had been. They were bringing men out of the home, right? And that sort of redefined where home was and who was there doing what, right? Right. Um, and in Russia, men didn't have those opportunities. Um, the commercial sector wasn't sector sector commercial sector, sector. <laughs> wasn't <laughs> growing uh, in the same way under Nicholas I because he was afraid of the bringing peasants to cities and into industry and the shops and so on would cause unrest and blah, blah, blah. So, the, you know, as we say, repressive Nicholas I, right, was, was literally repressing commercial activity to a degree. Uh, industrialization wasn't getting underway yet. Um, and then there's, of course, no vote, right? Um, so there's no political activity. Um, the universities are expanding in this period, but that affects the Chikashov's son, not the, the older generation, right? Uh-huh. So their son goes to the university. He eventually um, becomes a sort of quasi-engineer. He gets a professional education and that he, he begins to look like what we sort of expect a, a modern or late 19th century um, middle to upper middle class person to look like. Um, but in this earlier period in the 18th, 30s, his parents are still gentry landowners. They're living like their ancestors lived for a couple hundred years, and they have basically the same sort of smaller scale private education. Professions are not really open to them. Political activity is not open. I'm talking about Andre, of course, talking about men. Um, and so what does he do? What's left that obviously is going to affect the interpretation of domesticity in Russia? That part was well known, right? Um, so what I was looking at, and I think my book contributes, that's really the interesting part, um, is for one thing, how they arrange childcare. that in Andre's mind, and I do think, again, that this is something that other people were doing, but was not necessarily typical or representative, but was an option and, a, and a, an option that was not sort of looked down on, um, is that they could see bringing up a child, doing the tutoring of your small children before you send them to Moscow, um, which is a great distance away, for formal schooling would be done by the man of the house explicitly for him because he saw it as moral leadership, sort of moral and religious, that's implied, leadership, as well as education. And he saw that as a man's role. Well, if you think, okay, what's a Russian man, a Russian gentry or or sort of middling sort man's opportunities in society at that time, it was intellectual activity, not commercial, not professional, not political. They could read and they could write. And that was kind of it, right? And that was Um, public, right. 
That was yeah, he takes role. that over, and then that's what he does in the family. That's what he gives to his son to make sure that he's, his son is a good reader and writer, and he hopes his son will contribute in that way. And then when his children grow up, Andre then writes journal articles, right, because he wants to participate in that way. So that he defines that a masculine sphere that actually, in a way, is the model of domesticity. It's just sort of twisted because their circumstances are so different, and that makes it look strange at first. Right, um, and, and Natalia then, is the hazaika. But she's the, right. she is the housewife, so-called. Or how do you translate mm-hmm. Hazaike again? Um, I translate it in several ways um, because most people translate it as housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, that's most common, but it can mean lady as in lady of the house as a sort of social role um, yeah. in, in, in sort of being in charge of guests, right? It can also mean manager as in manager of property, which it did mean for her. And like today we use that word for a landlady, right? If you're renting a room in Russia from a female owner, she is your landlady. That's Hazyaike also means that. Mm-hmm. It means a lot of things. Um, in English, we have a lot more translation for that. Um, And her role was all of those things together. So some of her role was what we would see as sort of traditionally feminine in that she was in charge of sociability. When guests came over, she made sure they had a good time, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That they were well provided for, that they were comfortable. She did all those things. Um, But at the same time, she was running the budget. She gave Andre cash, a limited amount, which she recorded in the diary when he went out to run errands at her command, right? She She did a lot. I was amazed. I thought, oh my God, she does so much more than he did. Did you get that impression too? Oh Lord, yes. In fact, to go back to what what you asked earlier about sort of getting attached to these people. Um, I mean, I felt like I lived with them for a good many (laughs) years, but not always happily, I suppose (laughs) I would say, because frankly, Andre tended to drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> partly because he writes so much more and what he writes tends to be eccentric and interesting. And I really wanted Natalia to be at the center of this, her, who she was and her documents were why I got into the project. So I kept feeling like he was sort of crowding her voice out. Um, but also she was doing so much work. She worked herself to death in a sense. She worked so hard and her health failed over the years. And from the record of it, it does seem that overwork uh, wow. had something to do with it. We don't exactly know what she died of. Um, but it seems like she worked an awful lot, that it definitely affected her health, and her health gradually declined until she died. Um, he lived much longer. <laughs> he spent most of his time in his comfortable study, looking out at the garden, reading and writing. Um, and I do have to say, I found that rather irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did too. <laughs> um, so, speaking of uh, Natalia, though, she one of the things that... Uh, you know, it was really clear in the book that she was the, she managed the estate, she managed the budgets, she mm-hmm. um, managed also the serfs, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. uh, and they had um, roughly 200-something serfs, was that? Um, yeah, well, it's, they, they each had separate ownership. So Andre mm. owned, because it varies over the years, and then they give away dowry when they're uh, children marry, they take some and so on, but um, roughly around two to two fifty each. But then Andres were ninety percent um, mortgaged, okay. so in terms of his actual wealth, it's a lot less. Um, but their total was just under five hundred at the most they owned. I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and well, speaking of serfs, I mean, you didn't dwell on this for very long, but I was almost relieved actually that you found something about serf landowner interactions. Um, you found mm-hmm. a lot actually, and I was because I was afraid that the topic would sort of not be addressed because of evidentiary issues. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a lot of interesting material on it. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, again, for me, you know, you, you 
not to belabor this, but you wrote about these people in ways that made me care about them. Andre and Natalia, what a nice couple, and they have these nice children. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you report that they're beating their serfs. Yes. Yeah. And that they view them like children and that mm-hmm. the, their estate model was a family model. So that's, mm-hmm. I, I'd like you to maybe discuss that too. And, and, and also like, well, how did they justify, how they justified owning people? And um, I was wondering if you'd drawn any larger conclusions about the ideology that supported the surf system and, and maybe how it changed over time. I know that's a huge question, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, I won't answer that in a universal sense, but, yeah, yeah. but I can tell you what, what my doctorate told me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. It's a little bit like when you read Agatha Christie today and you, you come across the anti-Semitism, you're like, ooh, you know. Mm. Um, I, there's also that kind of feeling because, yes, in many ways, they these are people who come across as very accessible and it, it, that can be really enjoyable. And then, yes, behind all of it is that their entire lifestyle dependent on owning people. Um, one of the most nauseating parts for me was um, there was actually went on for some time through all of their diaries, there was a period where they were busily marrying off their serfs and they were literally mm. parading them through like livestock, through their parlor and deciding which pairs seemed like a healthy mix. Um, and I mean, that was literally the bile rose, you know, while I was reading that. Um, so that that's the thing is that's behind all of the Rus- Russian nobility, you know, um, before yes. the emancipation. And, and we, we always come back to that. In terms of what got into the book, it, it bothered me a little bit in a sort of moral sense that really the book is about how they perceived their serfs and what they perceived their interactions with their serfs to be. Um, mm-hmm. Not, I didn't get the serfs perspective. Um, there's very limited sense of I have a few reports that were written by serfs. I could tell a few things about them. And one of the criticisms that I've heard from people that, that is, I think, partially legitimate um, is that I didn't go to secondary literature about serfs that, that's based um, from the serf point of view that sells to, to sort of balance that out. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one is this was a microhistory where the whole point of it is, is to focus on this family and it's another book which has right. been written, right, by other people about the serfs. And I had a limited space in which mm-hmm. to take the most out of these documents. So I really had to stick to the point was part of it. Um, but also the middling gentry's point of view is one we didn't really have. And so I, I was very curious to find out what they thought about serfdom. And what's interesting to me, I mean, Natalia never says her view of serfdom. You know, her diary is not like that. It doesn't record her thoughts. It says what she did. Um, right. What we have from her are these everyday negotiations. And what was interesting to me is simply that she was negotiating. There's one, I think, very key passage that I quoted in the book where she's telling, she's reporting back to Andre and her brother, I'm not sure whether they're going to give me what I want. Mm-hmm. So it was clearly a give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that rose out of, you know, uh, yes, they were the masters and they legally owned these people. Um, on the other hand, they were out in an isolated estate, and if the peasant didn't think they were getting a fair deal, they would do something about it, and the chickenshops were aware of that, and so they, there was a back and forth, right? And there's a lot about that yeah. in the book. That's really sort of the core of their view. Andre, though, actually later in life wrote articles about serfdom, so we know his view quite explicitly, and then I have a series of letters between him and some friends and his son when the actual emancipation happens in 1861, so I know his view quite explicitly, and it's an interesting one because he thought serfdom was not working, was not a good idea. He doesn't go into the kind of detail we see from some of the radical critics of the time, which is mm. that, you know, just outright serfdom is morally wrong. You can't do that. You know, and there were other people, including conservatives, who freed their serfs, like Sergei Glinka, famously. He mm. wasn't freeing his serfs. Um, I think, you know, he needed the income. <laughs> he wasn't yes. about to 
throw that away. Um, and he also wasn't coming from it from a purely moral point of view of owning people is wrong. He didn't quite get there. Um, but what he did think was that the, the system was economically not working um, and that it was keeping the serfs back. He was very strongly in favor of education, and that's why he founded a library for serfs. And I found it really interesting that, unlike others, he didn't restrict it to religious texts. He thought serfs should have a broad general education. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, apprenticed quite a few of his. Um, he was teaching them to read from very early period. He thought that serfs would be more moral. He objected, obviously, to drunkenness, um, obstinacy. He thought was a moral failing. Right? Um, we could we could make arguments about why they were obstinate given their circumstances. But you know, the way he saw it was because he viewed them as children that they were it was like a disobedient child. Right? Um, but his solution, as his, his was his solution to everything, was more education, more education. So he thought if serfs had more viable skills for a, a progressing economy that was becoming more complicated, he was aware of that that they should you know, be taught the skills they needed to succeed in an economy like that. I think a lot of his view had to do with where they lived. Um, and this is where regional history gets really interesting. Because they lived in an area where growing crops in the fields didn't yield much, a lot of their serfs were already out in nearby towns in these sort of little workshop industries. There was a lot of textile industry in the area. Um, and they would be sent out to work, and then they would pay a portion of their income back to the Chikashaf and could keep the rest. Right. Now, not every surf in that circumstance was making anything beyond what they owed to their owners, right? Um, but some were, and, and they did have um, among their surfs people who bought their own freedom, that earned enough money to buy their freedom, and, and some became quite well off. Um, so that's part of it, is I think he saw the surf economy moving faster than maybe people did in, say, the Ukraine, where, where agricultural yields were much higher. Um, so that informed it. And then when the emancipation happens, he thought it needed to happen, but he thought the way the government did it without consulting landowners like himself was a bad idea, which I think most historians agree with. <laughs> it's interesting. So he, but it still seems that, do you have any sense that his views changed over time? Because this is, these are his writings when, I guess, post-emancipation or near-emancipation. Right around the time it was happening. Yeah, I think it's hard to say because I don't have much from like the 1820s when he was first married and his children were Mm. just being born. That period, there's very little, but what is there doesn't mention serfs really at all. And then there's um, one of the incidents where um, it was actually not his estate, but his um, in-law's estate, the wife, Natalia's parents. They had a sort of uprising as troublemakers, a group of troublemakers on their estate. And Andre's response was very harsh. He wanted to ship them all off to Siberia. <laughs> um, and that's kind of his only statement on serfdom in that early period. So that may be out of context because I have so little, but it seems like it's more when he gets into the 1840s where he's writing in the journals and then, and that's when a Emancipation was it was more under discussion publicly. That's when he starts to articulate a view, and I kind of think before that he wasn't thinking about it that much. That's I my see. impression. Hmm. Well, I want to get back to his writings, but before that, I I have to ask you about uh, the chapter on illness, death, and grieving because, mm-hmm. well, for personal reasons, I think I just found it especially poignant and uh, revealing of gentry culture. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I really think that the, yeah, the chapter has like a lot of implications for the history of childhood and. I don't know, the history of emotions, the history, of course, women's history and, you know, other mm-hmm. subfields. But, um, well, a couple, of, I guess a couple of things stood out for me. One was that Natalia, uh, just doesn't seem to have a language for emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and this has, and this is interesting because, you know, her diaries, 
um, like you, I think you said earlier that she just reported what she did, right? And not mm-hmm. what she really right. felt. I mean, it was pretty extreme. Obviously, Andre had this kind of sentimentalist or maybe mm-hmm. roughly speaking, um, style, I would say, or, or mm-hmm. you can, you can correct me here, but, um, and, uh, and she, she has these complaints of ailments constantly, right? Like she has yeah. migraines and she has stomach problems and they're always calling for the doctor and there are days where, you know, and given how much she works, okay, it's not totally far-fetched, but I, I did, I couldn't help but think that maybe she was depressed or, or she couldn't articulate maybe emotions in any other way, only like in, mm-hmm. in maybe in physical terms, that this was a kind of code for sadness or grief or, and then, or maybe she was a hypochondriac. I mean, you, you seem to suggest at the end that no, she's, she's not psychosomatic, that, that actually childbearing caused a lot of health problems for her and like you said, the work her, you know, she was working her tail off while Andre did his writing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and also about how they viewed, um, the family viewed children in childhood, because it's clear they lost two children, right, in infancy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so infant mortality was pretty high, yet they really, they seem to really love their children, although maybe I'm just kind of reading it that way. Uh, I, I guess it's a crude question, but I, I thought, you know, do they mourn the infants? Um, it seems like uh, they love their children, but how much or in the same way, let's say, as we love children, quote, love children in the 20th century, 21st century, is um, it's clear that Andre, for example, well, in terms of education, I think you make clear that he viewed he had a kind of Rousseauian understanding of education mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. viewing children as tabula rasa or you just you know, you fill them, full, you know, with information and they'll grow up to be great adults. You know, they're just blank slates that you can write on. And in other mm-hmm. words, not the later 19th century or the 19th century view of children as innocence that just mm-hmm. get corrupted over time, I think. So anyway, I said, I've probably said too much, but I, I thought maybe you could speak to some of these questions. Yeah, there's a lot there. And in many ways, I'm just sort of hoping and waiting for other scholars to find more evidence from other directions and and start to build something because, and that's again, uh, you know, where one of the criticisms with any microhistory and with this one in particular is, well, can you fill some of that out? We don't know anything. Mm. And this is definitely a case where I have no idea how representative, say, Natalia is and the way she writes her diary and whether that's her because she was a very practical, very no-nonsense kind of personality that comes through, and that's part of why Andre left so much to her, because he was bad at those things. How much is that these two people's personalities and, you know, just taking advantage of circumstances where she was able to do the financial stuff, um, you know, which would have been different in in France or England? How much of that is, was there an issue that was gendered, where women Uh, were uh not encouraged or sort of not approved when they were more emotional in that time. I don't know, and there isn't enough to know from mm-hmm. everything I read for this book. I think people are starting to get at this, and I do think it's going to come out. Um, and as we find more women's documents, because the thing is, I found these by accident. Who knows how much else is out in provincial archives we haven't seen yet, because there's not a lot of work.
work done at Provincial Archives. So I hope we'll find out more. That That's a big part of it. Um, but also, I mean, like the thing about her being a hypochondriac, <laughs> that was definitely my impression through reading most of her diary. And, and there were, you know, eye-rolling moments where I was like, oh, geez, you know, um, she, you know, this is the, the, the cliche of, of a woman. Is this the only way she can get attention from oh, the men God. in her life? Mm. Um, and I think there may have been some of it, but what's really striking, and I remember the moment I came across it, is um, the, the her brother, who was their neighbor and Andre's best friend, so he's very present in all the documents. His name is Yaakov. And he had this man living with him, and I never figured out exactly who he was or how he was connected. It's interesting. Um, I oh, think he was actually an uncle, the second you husband. Called him uncle. Uh-huh. You, you called yeah, him like his, an uncle. Sorry. He was the second yeah. husband of, of an Italian, Yaakov's mother, I think. So anyway, he lives with Yaakov, huh. and he's kind of an older gentleman named Timothy. He also has constant complaints. Like, it's him and Natalia who just are nonstop complaining about their health and almost everything they write. Um, but he is accused and, and joked about as being Mr. Woodhouse, and they're referring to Jane Austen's Emma, um, mm. and the famous hypochondriac Amazing. Mr. Woodhouse is Emma's uh-huh. father, right? Which It was blowing my mind first. I mean, I, I checked, and I was, Emma was translated and, and was available. Um, it's still kind of amazing to see them reading Jane Austen and, and joking, making in-jokes about it, you know. But they made that explicit joke. And in all of these documents where Natalia is much more present for a much longer period, that they never said anything like that. And what once I saw that, I sort of went back and read it again with a different eye. And I saw that every single time she does complain to her menfolk, so to speak, to her brother and her husband, right. they take her seriously every time, even though it's almost daily. They always take it seriously. Yeah, and they call for and, the doctor and they go through the medicines that don't work, yeah, the various... Right. Yes, yes. They try everything. They worry <laughs> a lot in writing. Um, and then that's, that's what got me on the sort of road of I tried, you know, I read read up on medicine at the time in Russia and elsewhere. I, I read up on women's documents and other places from the same time of how did they describe illness and childbirth in particular. And nobody was terribly explicit about it at the time. I mean, partly just, you know, prudishness. They used euphemisms, right? We still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just more at that time. Um, so to a degree, and then with her complaints, other than migraines, most of the other complaints did involve kind of the abdomen. And then I knew she lost right. two babies in infancy, which is not unusual at the time, but also there are big gaps between pregnancies. And given that it's really unlikely she used any kind of birth control, um, and Andrea was probably a little too moralistic to be turning to the surfs, like I think <laughs> a lot of landowners did, let's wow. be frank. Yes. Um, I'm assuming from that that it's at least very possible she also had a lot of miscarriages. And when she complains about pain in her side, I think that's probably euphemism, and it could be menstrual, it could be miscarriage. But And mm-hmm. then ultimately, the, the illness she had a long illness that led to her death, which was when she was 66, which is a pretty good age for the time. Um, but after a long series of, of nasty illnesses, the last long illness that led to her death was described as a woman's illness in Andre's papers. So that's mm. just reproductive, right? That's what it's got to be. So, you know, who knows? Prolapsed uterus, uh, you know, there's a million things that could be that we'll never be able to diagnose from this distance. Um, but putting all of that together, that's why I sort of came down on tentatively saying, I think most of it was real. Um, there's also the, the matter that um, the word hysteria is used for some of her little episodes, huh. which could I have was, been I used was, I was going either. To ask that question, right? Right. Yeah, it could either at that time, and I looked it up. It had to do with Russian womb, womb disease, well as yeah, of the womb, yeah. 
Right. It comes from illness of the womb. So by the middle of the 19th century, it was also being used as a sort of general women's, you know, women being hysterical in the sense we mean it today of not referring to something that's real, but just sort of having a fit. Um, but it could also mean physical illness related to the uterus. And I, I explain it in the book. There's one context where um, Andre uses it and he's clearly, he thinks that the solution is better solid walls for their new house and that that'll keep it warmer and that'll help with her hysteria, right? So that means physical. That means he thought it had physical origins. Wow. Huh. I mean, it is, yeah, it, it is tempting to read it somewhat psychoanalytically, or at least mm-hmm. given, given her lack of vocabulary, or at least in the writing, for just basic emotions, you, you have to wonder, given also their, um, well, the loss of their, their infants, etc. Yeah, that's the thing. How expressed? much of that was grief? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you, and, and you do I say, felt like yeah. I couldn't, couldn't know. You know, that that was, um, I think if we can find other women's diaries where we see similar things happening, that might be how women expressed grief at the time. You know, because Andre's grief is very overt, but it's also kind of formulaic. He has these sort of big sweeping statements of, you know, the equivalent of, oh, woe is me kind of thing. And I think he's getting that from sentimental literature. I mean, I think his grief was real, but the way he expressed it was something that, that, you know, a way of expressing that he understood, I think, through literature, because that's where else we see that kind of phraseology. Mm -hmm. So what was her model for expressing grief? Was she just a really tightly wound individual and it doesn't have any, you know, implications for anybody else? Or was this how women expressed grief? And we need more evidence. Well, was, I, I was Anna, was Anna right, Robson's diary written at around the same time? Um, let me think. It, uh, I think I the think events it, it covers occurred earlier, but I right. think it, it was written. I might be mixed up on that. But, but yeah, there is definitely some overlap either when the events occurred or when mm-hmm. she wrote it up. I think it's from when she wrote it up. Um, yeah, and, and I did think because about there's that. No, because you say, you say there's no introspection, in, even in Andre's diary, and it was really... Again, this is just, I'm harping on it because it's interesting to me. I assigned Anna Lobzina's diary to, to a class on, you know, Imperial Russia survey, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the students were dying of boredom. They were, really? I mean, I, they, they would come and complain about how repetitive the diary was and how they hated her for her re- repetition. And, and I, of course, oh. I would say, well, what do we learn from that? Like, how do we, <laughs> right. um, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, but it, uh, so I think that though what they were reacting ag- uh, to actually and what they found quote boring was partly the the lack of introspection, the lack of psychologization, mm-hmm. and she had some she had more than Natalia, but it was very limited and, and very kind of shallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and I mean it's a little hard to compare them because hers is a memoir and Natalia's mm-hmm. a diary, that's but true, but that's yeah. definitely true of both. And well, I mean it's also hers. I call a work record. Her diaries I call a work record, which is. You know, there's a typology of, of personal narratives, and, and hers is what they usually call an early modern style of work record. That just this is what I did, this was who visited, this is you know what I fed them, that kind of thing. Andre is also not really introspective. It's I think a sort of it's a, a stage between those kind of early modern work record type diary keeping and the the later 19th century introspective diary keeping that's much more psychological. Because Andre doesn't really ever he never questions himself exactly. Huh. He berates himself about his temper a few times. Um, but, right. And he records his thoughts in the sense that he'll say what he liked about a book. He, you know, when he talks about serfdom, that's really in his journal articles and in letters, not in a diary. Um, 
and he doesn't ever say sort of things like, is this why I feel this way? Or is this why I'm the person I am? You know, that true introspection, psychological introspection is never there. And we had actually a diary of his grandson. It's just an excerpt. It's a brief fragment. Um, But from the 1880s, I think it is from much later. And that's totally introspective. It's exactly a modern style diary where he he does goes into those kinds of questions. And the difference is really stark. Um, so Andre, I think, is a sort of in-between type, and, and I, sentimentalism is, is, I think, really the, the intellectual influence that's coloring the way he writes and the way he expresses himself, and he loved that literature. He absolutely adored it. He thought it was great and the best possible way of expressing and human he, life. And he right? seems self-consciously to model himself on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so I, even early on, yeah. he expresses ambition to be a writer and thinks he isn't good enough a couple decades before he actually tries. Um, so he was thinking that really early. Well, I loved I loved your chapter on uh, the la- the landscape of ideas chapter. I thought you did a really great job of contextualizing actually Andre's oh, ideas in the intelligentsia tradition, and um, or actually explaining why that context wasn't entirely appropriate. So, for <laughs> instance, you mentioned that he's sort of a Slavophile, and this, uh, but not really because he's he's actually too pro monarchy to be a, a Slavophile in the way that we perhaps. Yeah, think of that's Slavophiles. the biggest contrast. Yeah, mm. between him and, and sort of official Slavophiles. Mm. I mean, you could say Slavophiles are people who call themselves Slavophiles if you want to be really technical about it. And I don't feel like I necessarily need to be that picky, but I do think it's really important that Slavophilism was essentially critical, at least towards the monarchy, um, very significantly, um, at least the post-Petrine monarchy. And Andre is, you know, slavishly worshipful <laughs> of the monarchy. Um, so that really just doesn't fit to me. I think he has Slavophile elements in his thought, for sure. He's conservative and he's nationalistic. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I wouldn't put him in that group. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Well, Kate, I mean, we've taken up a lot of your time already and it's it's been so much fun talking to you. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to end the interview by asking you our traditional final question. Uh, right. what are you up to now? Yeah, I'm starting on a new book project, very early stages, but like I mentioned in passing, the the thing that I had hoped to get at that I really couldn't with the Chikachev documents was women's religious practice in mm. in a lot more depth and really understanding the ideas and and how what religion meant to them and so on in a more explicit way than I saw with Natalia's diaries. So the new project is, I think, <laughs> it's going to be conceived as a collective biography of five women who were mystics, pietists, they were religious in a variety of, of um, ways that were not mainstream. Um, so that's part of what's interesting about them and that they were all women. They all were also connected to Tsar Alexander I. I'm going a little bit earlier in time. This is going to be the very early 19th century. Um, some of the women are quite well known. The Tsar's own sister, Grand Duchess Catherine Pavlovna, who is kind of a figure of ridicule in her time for various right. reasons, um, but had mm-hmm. strong religious ideas that influenced her brother. They were, um, well, I haven't yet come up with a better word to describe them other than wacky. <laughs> <laughs> she had some very unusual ideas um, that that were very became out of fashion very quickly. But there was this brief period when Alexander was still on the throne, and when she was very influential, and she was a part of of these influential circles that were experimenting religiously with um, Bible societies, which 
Bibles and, and learning the Bible in Russian was not a thing the Orthodox Church had been strong on <laughs> traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, and Alexander and the Bible Societies tried to introduce that. They were influenced by British Protestants with that. Um, so another one of the figures is Baroness Crudener, who um, is kind of known as a writer, actually, one of the early women writers in French. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the circles who have, who have heard of her before and the scholars who've worked on her before, but she is a mystic who she's most famous as being the so-called Lady of the Holy Alliance. Her religious ideas, along with Grand Duchess Catherine's, were influential on Alexander, who in the Congress of Vienna, wrapping up the Napoleonic Wars, his notion for how peace in Europe should be secured was the so-called Holy Alliance, which is this, in retrospect, slightly nutty idea that the God-fearingness of Christian monarchs would somehow create this like brotherhood that would hold them together. Which, yeah, it didn't age well. <laughs> yeah, it did not age well at all. <laughs> and frankly, the British uh, diplomatic crew, especially just made fun of him outright, even at the time. Right, right. Um, but it's all kinds of all kinds of historical interest in why that was even possible and, and where it was coming from and the implications um, for nationalism in Russia, for religious ideas and the role of women and all of that. So anyway, the, the other figures are less well-known. Roxandra Sturza, whose brother was a fa- famous conservative, but she's less well-known. Um, Sofia Siechina, who's also, she wrote in French and was published, so people are, were more aware of that. And then Ekaterina Tatarova, who is definitely the most extreme of the mystics. She had a little circle that was very, very unusual. She, like, you know, became possessed and, and that kind of stuff. And she was eventually, her circle was shut down when Alexander died and Nicholas succeeded him. He shut down her circle and put her in a monastery. Um, hmm. So a very interesting story. And all of these women... Um, uh, Three of them, I think, are Baltic Germans. Well, Grand Duchess Catherine, you know, she's she's the sister of the Tsar, but she's really more German than Russian ethnically, yeah. as we know about the Russian imperial family. And then Krudner and Tatarnov are both born Baltic German. Um, Sechina, I think, was born Russian. I'm slipping my mind at the moment. But they have, none of them are really purely Russian-Russian in the sense that anyone understood it at the time, yet they're all nationalists. Um, oh. mm-hmm. So there was a Romanian refugee. Um, so... What, part of what's interesting to me is the connection between religion and early nationalism and conservatism, which is developing in this time. It's still very, um, there's still a lot of formulations of it. It goes all across the spectrum. Where you were as a nationalist or conservative was not um, very much pinned down at that time. And I'm really interested in the amorphousness of those ideas in that early period um, and then the role of gender in it. So that's all rather vague because mm-hmm. I'm just getting started, but that's where it's all going. It sounds very exciting. I mean, d- decidedly not ordinary, though, but ex- <laughs> no. exciting. Um, no, there's nothing ordinary about these people. <laughs> all right, Kate. Thanks so much. Uh, we've been talking to Catherine Pickering Antonova about her book, An Ordinary Marriage the world of a gentry family in provincial Russia. Uh, thanks to our audience too for listening and uh, till next time.